Welcome to The Road Back to You. Looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram, I'm Suzanne Stabile. And I'm Ian Cron. And we're so glad that you're listening today. Hey friends, welcome to The Road Back to You. This is Suzanne Stabile, and I'm here with my good friend, Ian Cron. How you doing, man? You know, it's a beautiful day in, in, in Nashville, but it's, it's about five or six days after the election now, and I think I'm feeling like the rest of America, which is I'm utterly exhausted. Well, you know, as a two on the Enneagram, I'm feeling like all of America. Oh my gosh, you're having all of America's feelings right <laughs> That's now. That's right. Oh my gosh. So I'm, I'm not in really great shape myself. Well, then we have just the right guest on today. Um, we had, uh, a couple of months ago on our show, one of the most remarkable, really, people uh, speaking around the topic of American politics on. His name is Michael Ware. And we promised that we'd have him back on after the election. And he's on today. And I've been really looking forward to this because I've listened to that episode with him, the last one we did, a couple of times. Me too. Uh, just by way of reminder, let me tell you a little bit about Michael. Michael is the founder of uh, Public Square Strategy. He's a leading expert at the intersection of faith, politics, and American public life. Uh, he was the Obama Director for Faith Outreach in 2012. He served in the faith-based office uh, in the White House uh, with uh, the, the Obama administration. And he's got a big book coming out, and I think it's going to be a really great, really great book. Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America. January 17th is the street date, and you can pre-order on Amazon, and I would encourage you to do so pronto. Hey, Michael. Hello. How you doing? Good to be with you. You too. I'm so excited that the name of your book is Reclaiming Hope. Yeah. Because uh... I think we're so in need of that. It's, uh, it, it, it's, you know, it, it wasn't what I was expecting, but, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting how, how the book is read in light of, uh, the last week and, and the season that we're in. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting it out and I've been looking forward to being back speaking with you all since, uh, since our last conversation. So it's just, just uh, I, I, I'm not sure there's anyone else I'd rather be talking to uh, uh, six days after the election than, than y'all. So thanks for having me back on. Oh, that's so gracious. Let me just tell you, my husband Joe said that the next time I have my, I have, need to have business cards printed. And he said I should just have some printed with your name on them too, because I tell everybody they need to know you. <laughs> so, um, gosh, I, there's there's so much angst and discomfort around, yeah. um, and I think everybody's tired. I'm really glad that Ian put that out there, that there is a weariness about uh, all that's around us. What would you say would be the most hopeful path that we might take in terms of trying to find a common place to stand regardless of how we voted? Yeah. Well, um, Dr. Raphael Warnock uh, is, uh, preaches from the pulpit of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, which is the pulpit that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had. And uh, Dr. Warnock 
has this amazing quote. He says, it takes a tough mind and a tender heart to hold on to hope. Um, and I think we need both. We need a tough mind because the challenges facing our country are profound. We need a tender heart because if our, if our hearts become calcified, if we grow cynical uh, because of the vitriol from both sides, because of the, the stakes and the passions involved, um, then, then we're not going to be much good. And I'll tell you, this is a challenging thing to say right now. It's something that I said before the election, but now, and, and I get it, these are unprecedented times in many ways, um, but, but those of us who believe that politics is not ultimate um, have to insist that it's not ultimate, even when it seems like that's all there is. And uh, it, it's, it's been interesting. I'll say something like that, and I'll, I'll have uh, folks kind of – and I, I understand it. I really do. Um, but but I've, I've, I've dedicated my whole professional career to politics I'm writing a book on politics, so I'm I'm not someone who's suggesting that politics is not important. What I'm suggesting is that, uh, as as we discussed on our last conversation, if we are engaging in politics with our feet planted in politics, um, that's going to be an unsafe and unproductive place for us to be. And so, um, I, we need to find rest. Um, we also need to find uh, grounding. To engage right now because the challenges are already presenting themselves, um, but we can't turn on one another. We can't use the passions of these times um, as as a weapon to, to hit each other over with. This is a time for inclusion. This is a time for listening to one another. You know, and this is a, I mean, gosh, you know, this is a, a show about looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram. And, you know, you've really hit on something that's a hope for Suzanne and I. Uh, uh, imperfect as it is, uh, one of the most beautiful things about the Enneagram is how it uh, awakens us to difference and, and hopefully to appreciation for difference. And uh, that it, hope, you know, people would be able to see through other people's lens, how they, how they see and experience the world, they filter the world. And, uh, uh, and hopefully it would generate some, some compassion and empathy uh, for the other and, and make space you know, for the other. And I think the Enneagram does do that. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about it uh, as we talked preparing for our time with Michael that just under the surface in twos, threes, and fours is shame. Yep. And just under the surface in five, sixes, and sevens is fear. And for eights, nines, and ones, it's anger. And that knows no political party. Mm-hmm. It's like we are all feeling one of those things because yes. we're so um, weary Mm-hmm. from all that has come our way. And I I hope that might provide a little bit of common ground. Like, I, I, I could say I feel afraid, aware that people maybe who didn't vote like I did also feel afraid. So I, I wonder, uh, Michael, where you think we might find um, some c- common ground with common language to start a new conversation. The, the conversation leading up to the election... I think needs to be over. Is yeah. that correct? I mean, right? It's 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 difficult. These are these are tender moments, um, and so I'm um, uh, 
there, there are probably some conversations that were happening going into this election that, that need to continue. Here, here's what I'd say. Um, you don't have to, you don't have to accept the legitimacy of the reasons for people's shame, fear, or anger, but you have to accept the reality of their shame, fear, or anger. Um, and so we have, uh, a discourse right now that's predicated on a whole bunch of different ideological assumptions that are used uh, to deny the humanity of what people are feeling. Um, on the on the other side of that, um, we need to make sure, to the best of our ability, and there has to be a lot of grace in this because people have different capacities for doing so, um, and so we need to understand that some people will have different capacities for doing this than others. But to the extent possible, we need to be careful that we aren't using our passions and our feelings uh, uh, as a weapon um, uh, to silence others or to sort of coerce uh, or manipulate a conversation our way. Hmm. And so there's a difference between, um, there's a difference between being open, not just about your ideas, but about your feelings. And we don't want an emotionless politics. We don't want an emotionless political discourse. But if you use your feelings and your emotion as a way to to silence someone else from expressing theirs and expressing their ideas, um, then, then that's one way to break off communication really easily. Uh, I, th- that kind of rhetoric, that kind of tactic is is part of why we never got to understand um, how Donald Trump could become president, right? I, I mean, it, it is, there has to be an, a, a, an amount of self-reflection among myself, among others, that going into election night, very few people thought the election would turn out the way that it did. And uh, frankly, it shows a lack of empathy, again, on my part, on the part of, of many folks, um, a, a lack of understanding for what was what was happening uh, in this country, and so um, so, so uh, th- there are some proactive steps that we could take, but it's very hard to get to the proactive and the and the common um, if we aren't able to move away from uh, uh, the manipulative and the coercive. You you know, there's a young woman who works with us who asked me to ask this question. And the question is, for people for whom it doesn't feel right or helpful to say Trump isn't my president, how can they conscientiously object to the things that he said in order for that to be meaningful or helpful in some way? Yeah. Well, I would say that um, your objection and your protest is only meaningful uh, if you give it um, with understanding that Trump is your president. In, in other words, um, when MLK went to the Lincoln Memorial, um, he spoke about a country that had rejected his very humanity, and yet he took seriously the promise of that country. Uh, he said that there's a that there's a check, uh, a check of liberty and freedom that had been um, uh, uh, written but not not accepted, and he he was he was coming to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, 
uh, with that check in hand. Uh, in other words, he took he took seriously the civic promises that even uh, the leaders of this country had not taken seriously. Mm. Um, and so, uh, if if Trump is not your president, from what standing do you have to stake your claim? Uh, on his administration, for what standing do you have? Uh, you're actually you're actually ceding the very ground that um, you're ceding the very argument that other folks are having. That well, you know, our political elections—it's one side versus the other side—and whoever wins, they get all the power, and uh, their side wins, and it's a zero-sum game. No, what's most effective is to say uh, you may have won with without my vote, but now you're my president and you have an obligation with or without my vote to serve me too. And it's from that ground that I'm, I'm making these demands, these requests. Um, uh, it, th- that is what Trump has stepped into now. And so for, for, the, for the person who asked that, I, I would actually um, argue that, that she and others should, uh, should, should own the fact that Trump is their president, and it is from uh, it is from that understanding that you're able to um, that you're able to argue as a, as a citizen of this country. Hmm. I just want to clarify that she she's standing on Trump is my president, and yeah. now what do I do? And, and ah, now yeah, yeah, what, yeah. what what do, what do we do? Right. So um, Richard Rohr is a great teacher of ours, yeah. and um, he says that opinions are underdeveloped thinking. What could one do uh, in, the, in the coming months and years to have opinions that are based on more than underdeveloped thinking? You know, I, what, what, what could, should we look to, or where should we read, or how can we grow our understanding of the whole system without kind of falling in a hole. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I think um, we want to read broadly. Um, we, we want to um, have conversations broadly, and we want to assume that other people are bringing knowledge to the table that would benefit us. Uh, and our purpose in either private conversations or in the public square is to find the truth alongside other people. It's not to get our way. It's not to manipulate people to see things the way we do. Um, We're actually on the same journey together. Um, And if they have an explanation or an idea that proves more worthwhile than ours, uh, we're, we're not obligated to, whatever idea we have at the time, we're, we're obligated to the thing that's best, to the thing that's good, that's true, that's beautiful. And if we carry that posture with us, that's going to be helpful. To, to speak concretely, um, you know, I think it, I think it means, uh, I think it means watching Fox News. Um, if you're, especially if you're, um, if you're coming from the liberal perspective uh, and not watching it, with a cold heart, <laughs> but but actually watching it with the intent of finding whatever whatever nuggets of truth you could find in what they're doing 
that's the approach you have to take. And if you're conservative, it means, um, you know, MSNBC. It means uh, if, if you don't understand Black Lives Matter, for instance, it means uh, actually digging into the literature. It means reading people like ta Coates, like Jamel Bowie, um, uh, 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 like Michelle Alexander, um, uh, if you don't understand Trump voters, it means picking up J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy and understanding, uh, understanding, uh, understanding that that perspective. And uh, when you when you read broadly, you understand how deeply human all of these currents are. But w- when you don't read broadly, when you don't talk uh, uh, to a diverse group of people, it's very easy to flatten. Out all of the disagreements we have into just pure power struggles. Um, and there is more going on. Don't let people tell you that the only reality is who has power and who doesn't. That's, that's, that's not all that's going on uh, in our politics and in life generally. And so, and so uh, th- that would be, that would be some advice to not just read broadly and, but actually approach opposing or different viewpoints with the expectation that you're going to find something that sharpens what, what you thought. Mm. So, um, Joseph Conrad, uh, one of my favorite authors has a quote that strikes me. He says, it is my belief. No man ever understands quite his own artful dodges to escape (laughs) from the grim shadow of self knowledge. Yeah. And I, I've been thinking about in this uh, election that how much, um, not just other knowledge, knowledge of the other has been lacking, yeah. but how self-knowledge and self-awareness has been lacking, and, and which has only heightened my appreciation for the Enneagram, because that's what we hope it does, in part, is help people uh, be able to look at their dark side, not, not what's, what's best and what's worst about mm-hmm. them. Um, can you just talk a little bit to me or to Susan and I about like the the interplay between self knowledge, other knowledge, and politic, maybe politics? Huh. That's a fascinating question. Um, there were times when I was in the White House talking about an issue with advocates or even with other staffers. And at some point in the conversation, it would appear, it, it, it would become clear to me that uh, that there was more going on than uh, an evidence-based sort of emotionally neutral conversation. And uh, depending on what the conversation was, with who it was with, sometimes I would gently follow up, sometimes it wasn't appropriate, but there was the sense that um, th- this person doesn't just care about the policy. This person is thinking about the Catholic school teacher that was that was mean to them when they were a child. Th- right. This person, this person is thinking about uh, the the religious experience they had that either uh, buffeted them or, or uh, supported them for the rest of their lives or that has been a nag on their souls for, um, uh, since it happened. Um, and so even in these areas that seem so, you know, right. So there's an increasing 
move in the social sciences um, to try and to try and uh, systematize and factualize the social sciences so that they act like a natural science. And social sciences don't work that way. Um, uh, but but with all of the all the vernacular that's starting to surround things like politics, uh, it can make it seem like uh, it does. And we need to always remember that there's much more going on than just a bunch of data points. Um, and so, so th- that would be, that would be one approach I'd have to that uh, question. And then there are, um, and, and it, right, it's been very clear on social media, um, over the last week, it's been clear in, in my activity as I look back and it's been clear as, uh, as I've, I've seen others interact, um, that, uh, if you're responding strongly to to uh, to what someone else is posting, or if you feel compelled to um, to write off a, a screed post on someone's Facebook wall, um, it's really worth it. And I know it's hard. It's really worth it just to check yourself a little bit and be in tune enough with yourself, which is why the enneagram is so helpful, so that you can you can target some of the motivations for why you feel the way you do um, and why you're reacting the way you are that may not be based just on the concrete substance of what is going on. Um, uh, And if you don't have that self-knowledge, you'll find yourself constantly reacting um, and never uh, truly engaging with the situation as it is and from from a center, from a, from a place and just a de spiritual, uh, you'll know that you have self-knowledge when you go to bed at night without regret for things that you posted on social media earlier that day. Right. We, we have this, uh, exercise we do with people called snap, which is to stop, notice, ask, and perceive. And I think what, uh, or a pivot to stop in a moment, and to, particularly when you have a lot of afflictive, disproportionate energy, right? And I think that's a little bit of what you're talking about. Sometimes people will, you'll ask a question and their answer will have so much disproportionate energy that you know that underneath that there's an energy-laden belief that they've been carrying a long time that's been triggered. Yes. And I've oftentimes even said to people uh, in a counseling situation or even in a social situation, I'll say, who else is in the room right now? Because it, there's so much energy here, I just know that it's not just me you're angry at or happy. There's, there's a lot of other people in the room right now that yes. are getting spoken to. And I, I think um, the, well, one of the nice things or the wonderful things about the Enneagram is, is that it, it actually raises to consciousness some of these motivations that, um, and using an exercise like SNAP, uh, so that in the moment we can say, what is really going on here? Like what, what's really going on in this room? in my personality that's getting triggered and how do I, how do I react, uh, respond versus react? Yeah. You know, you're a priest and my husband's a pastor. And one of the things that happens when there are antagonists in the church, which there always are, is one of the things Joe and I have learned over the years is it's never about what it's about, Hmm. you know, and, and I wonder how we ask that question. And you just gave me some really good examples of how we might do that. So if we went with, this is not about what it's about, 
and somebody said, okay, well, then what's it about? What would you say, Michael? <laughs> well, th- there, there's a lot. It's a huge, it's a very huge conversation, and I'm still processing a, a, a lot of it. Um, and and, and fr- frankly, it's a, it's a conversation that um, – where a lot of different perspectives are needed to make the whole, but, but so let me just, um, there is a basic instability that people are feeling in their lives that is affected by politics, but politics is not at the very foundation of it. Um, but it plays a big role. Um, and so, um, there has been, uh, there have been a, uh, there has been great uh, cultural, political, economic upheaval over the last decade, um, and for those who are happy with that, uh, they're sensing a fragility that things will return to the way that they were. For those who um, have not been able to or have not wanted to sort of accommodate themselves to these changes. Um, there, there's a, there's a discomfort. There's a yearning. I mean, for different people, the, the root sort of it, uh, the root of it is, is different. Uh, but, but people are, people are feeling unstable. They're feeling unrooted. And, uh, when you, uh, when you then add to that, when you add to all of the changes, um, the fact that, you know, what we call uh, mediating institutions, so sort of institutions between the person and the state, um, the decline of mediating institutions, that um, the the veterans halls aren't as frequented, uh, the Rotary Clubs and the Lions Clubs are are, are not the places that they used to be. Even the church, um, church attendance is down. Uh, people are spiritually unmoored as they become religiously unaffiliated. Which, And so all of these things have, when there's been so much change uh, with the state, in politics, with major forces like the economy and with social structures and then they don't have these mediating institutions to to fall back on to give them a sense of security that drives much fear and anxiety and anger that people just don't know how to process through it all and so what uh, you can apply i think you can apply that basic framework to almost uh it doesn't just apply to folks who supported Trump. It doesn't just uh, apply to folks who supported Clinton. Uh, uh, that is sort of the the basic environment in which we're working under um, and, and different people are reacting to it in, in different ways. Yeah, you know, I, I um, love, just want to focus on the word instability for a moment um, because different types on the Enneagram will respond to instability differently, I think. Um, uh, when circumstances, when they feel disequilibrated, you know, psychology, that's the, a word we might use. And when the ground starts to feel more like jello than solid earth, right? Yeah. So let's just talk about that for a second. How would a one respond to instability and, and 
just can you so let's riff a little bit and, and, and michael just to give you a fair warning as a four i'm going to ask you okay we're going to ask <laughs> you how fours would react yeah. to instability in the environment um, it's my experience that ones feel responsible for what's happening around them. Mm. So I, I think a one's response to this instability would be, I, I got to do something to fix this. Mm. I, I have to, I have to fix it. I'm responsible. If everybody else walks out of the room, I've got to handle this. Mm. Um, you want me to keep going? You got to do two. I can't do two. Um, <laughs> I, I think as I, I'll just talk about how I feel as a two. I'm just sad. You know, breaches in relationships are very difficult for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'm feeling like there's a chance that there are there there is divisiveness that we're not going to still have this much passion for in terms of putting people back together. It's like we're all whipped up and we're dividing over that. But I, where are we going to get the energy to repair this? Um, thank you for the affirmation, Michael. I like that. Uh, I, I think for threes, there's a bigger question because threes are big picture thinkers. And so I think threes are, are wondering, okay, there, there is still here an answer. We need to find out what the answer is. And I want people to be able to follow me once I figure it out. I think threes want to lead. So I think they're looking for, um, uh, a group of beliefs or a way of presenting information so that they can get people to line up behind them to do things differently. Yeah. Now you need to take fours. Um, well, I, I was just, <laughs> y- y'all are <laughs> going to make me cry. Um, uh, yeah. So I, I deeply resonate with all of that. I think all of that's playing a role as a, as a four, um, At times of instability, I want to um, affirm what I know to be true. I want to, um, I want to, re- I want to return to those moments and ideas and feelings um, that I resonate with, and that I can go back on as a as a firm foundation. That I I know this is true. So even though everything is changing. Um, I'm able to conjure up the certitude that I had, like when you first, when you first lay your eyes on that woman that you're in love with. For it, you can, you can, you can go back to that moment when you first saw her, and and no matter what else is going on, you you're grounded in that. And so it's to, you know, um, and now sometimes that that creates dissonance with the moment because if everyone else is on is on one wavelength and you're saying well let's 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 go back to what we know is true everyone a lot of other people are saying well well that's nice that's good but look at everything that's changed right. <laughs> and so it, it creates some some dissonance but but that's and and, and you know like I'm, I'm saying that now as if it's like uh like obviously i think i'm I think I'm right to return to like, like I think sure. it's at the very time when uh, the things that are true are up for grabs that are in challenge that that's exactly the time when you want to reground in those. But, but it's, it's a difficult thing. I think fives 
investigators would double down on, I got to, I got to figure this out knowledge wise. I got to get myself out there and, and, and Hoover up as much information as I can about what's going on and master it for, maybe I'll get a sense of security and stability if I just know enough. I mean, I'm going to read all those books about that were just mentioned and I'm going to try and figure it all out. And now we got to, I mean, we got to talk about sixes here because you know, uh, everywhere we go, Suze, every workshop we've done during this whole election cycle, people talk about sixes who are, you know, folks who need to feel and believe that they are secure and that um, in an election, if they are the most, the, the, they also, we also believe that there are more sixes in the population than any other number. And so they've had a big impact on in this election. And certainly those uh, politicians have certainly known that fear is a very, very powerful manipulative uh, instrument. And um, how, did, how, did, how did sixes do, Suze? How are they doing now? Well, I, it's very interesting because I, I do think fear had a lot to do with um, where we are on both sides. What I would say, though, is that I think sixes now are going to be a big part of the solution. And, and the reason I think that is because sixes more than any other number... I believe, are concerned about the common good. And I think what we all need to do is kind of rise above all of this and leave some of our rhetoric behind and ask what's best for everybody, what is best for the common good. I also think sixes are very dutiful, and I think they're willing to do their part if they know what it is. And I, I think uh, we're going to have to depend on people to, to direct us, Michael, you know, I can talk to people about the Enneagram all day long, but I'm going to have to have people in Washington who know things I have no way of knowing to help direct me in how to move forward. And I think sixes will be responsive to that. I think sevens are probably struggling mm. because um, it's kind of hard to to reframe what you see on the evening news, regardless of where your allegiance lies. Right. Oh. Um, but they'll also see the bright side of it. They will, you and, know, and maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, right? well, we could little, you could use a little optimism <laughs> in the room, right? Yeah. A little optimism in the room yeah. it wouldn't be such a bad thing. Uh, we, um, my daughter is uh, is an is an eight on the enneagram, but she's living in Amman, Jordan, right now. My wife and I were saying, by the way, she's one of the most beautiful, wonderful human beings in the world. But I thought, oh my gosh, I'm kind of glad she wasn't here for this. I mean, in the middle of it all, oh. because I mean, talk about lighting a fuse. For her, and mm-hmm. she's very political and uh, cares deeply. She's very much of an activist. Um, tell me what you think an eight is feeling right now. You got Joey at home, your daughter. She's an eight. What, what do you think eights are feeling right now in the wake of it all? I, I, I think eights are, are done looking backwards. It's like, okay, here we are. Uh-huh. So now what are we going to do? It's we got to figure out what we're going to do now, and I don't think they're rehashing anything. I think they're saying, how do we move forward? Mm-hmm. And I, I think nines, you know, I keep saying to nines, you're the only number on the Enneagram that sees two sides to everything. And when you don't step up, when you don't use your voice because you don't think it's okay to assert yourself and because you don't think your presence matters, when you don't do that, we all suffer because you're yes. the one who sees both sides. Yeah. Mm. What do you think mm. about that rundown, Michael? How would no, you I respond? Think, I think that's exactly right. And I think you're particularly right about about the nines. Um they 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 need to um but it's a dangerous place to be i mean it's dangerous to be a peacemaker um it's it's um and so that encouragement is is right on on point that um you'll be of you'll be of 
greatest value to people. Uh, you'll be of greatest value to the people that you don't hear from, <laughs> that you don't get a response from. Right. Uh, nines, nines hear a lot from those who disagree on either side of them, from those who are upset that you would validate the other side. Right. Um, but, but that's exactly the kind of perspective and de-weaponizing of our political views that is, that is necessary. I want to run something by you that I think is hopeful. Please. Years ago, uh, so many years ago that I don't know if he's taught it for years and I teach it consistently. I heard Richard Rohr teach about the difference in tra- change and transformation. And he said then, and I've worked with a lot since, that change is when you take on something new. And transformation is when something old falls away, usually beyond your control. And whether or not you're a member of either of the major parties, something old has fallen away. And if this is transformational time for us, then it is also liminal space. Liminality meaning that we're not where we were and we're not where we're going. And to quote Richard again, he says that liminal space is the most teachable space and perhaps the only teachable space. So do you have anything that you would offer about what you think we need to be learning right now? (laughs) I mean this earnestly. Um, That is the entire conviction behind my book. So there was this uh, sociologist who spent time with... uh, Folks who have uh, who had attempted suicide, and he, uh, through his research um, and spending his time, he found that those who had made it out um, uh, had uh, had a hope that was different from all others. What he called a fundamental hope. Uh, it was a hope that transcended circumstances. But he said that the only way that they got to that fundamental hope was through profound disappointment. Mm. And if, if, if we are going through a time of, of profound disappointment now that opens us up uh, to something that is more real and more lasting than the trauma and disappointment that we've been through, um, then, then there, there will be uh, there's a cost that won't be erased. Um, it, 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 it will be a cost that we may look back and, and say this was, a, this was a season that we had to go through, both mm-hmm. in, our, in our lives and, and as a country. And I want to be, be really tender when I, when I say that, and, and I'll just proactively say that I, I may be wrong yeah. on, <laughs> on that. So I, I, wanna, I don't want to dismiss um, I don't want to dismiss uh, the the severity of 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 what folks are are going through, yeah. um, but uh, the sociologist uh, wasn't dismissing <laughs> the severity of what these patients were going through, and uh, and so so that that would be um, I, I felt this deeply about um, the conversation around race in America that. Um, that we may look back on this time of these last two or three years where so many people have said, uh, I think wrongly, you know, race relations seem to be 
great. And now look at them. Why have things gotten so much worse? Um, uh, I think that what we're going through right now is a tilling of the ground uh, uh, that will um, that will allow a harvest to be reaped later mm-hmm. on. That one of possible without this upsetting, mm-hmm. without without this tilling of the ground. And um, uh, my hope is that is what is happening um, throughout our, our, throughout our politics, throughout our culture, a, a, a tilling of the ground. That's a preparation for, mm. um, for, for harvest time, for Jubilee. So I, um, uh, two things strike me. I want to, um, we, we have three triads in the, in the Enneagram. We have a fear triad, right? Five, six, seven. We have an anger triad, eight, nine, one, two, three, four. We have a heart triad, feeling triad, um, these are the dominant emotions that seem to, these, these folks seem to swim around in, right? We've had a lot of talk about fear. We had a lot of talk about anger. But I want to take a second and just uh, talk about shame for a minute. Mm-hmm. Because there's been a lot, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's sort of an ignored reality out mm-hmm. there. When, when, when I think that many people in this country feel ashamed and shamed by others. And I, I, I'm going to say something, Jim, you can take it out, my producer, Jim, if you, if you like, but I'm going to say it because, because it's a nonpartisan thing I'm going to say here. I think one of our uh, uh, candidates was a shaming candidate, and I think the other one was shameless, and, um, which is an unusual dynamic in, uh, uh, with two people, and arguably maybe why they're the two most unlikable candidates in our history. And... Uh, I think that um, shame, more than fear or anger, is the most profoundly damaging, uh, soul-corrosive reality related to the, right out of the Garden of Eden. For me as a Christian, I I just think it is really, it really, it it, it makes fear and anger look like like little things, really. Um, I'd just love to hear your thoughts, because we talk about so much fear and anger, and what has can you think about how shame has has played a role in our political life of late? Um, and that was, y- y'all are the the experts. I w- I'd love your but but when I when I think um, shame is the least productive, the least socially productive of the three. Interesting. Yeah, that and is so, interesting. And so when you um, and I've been very influenced by Dallas Willard's teaching mm-hmm. anger. Um, and so I deeply question the role of anger. I think, I think we live in a culture that I think, um, values anger for much more than it's worth, but, um, uh, and, uh, there's, there's real, uh, there are, there are constraints to be put on fear as well, but fear and anger have some, uh, have some uh, propulsion towards the public. Shame actually leads one inwards. It, it leads one um, to feel isolated, to feel um, to feel misunderstood in a way that's. Um, uh, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but but uh, narcissistic or, or inward looking. Um, and, and so when you have um, 
that that leads to something of a of a powder keg and, and frankly a way in a very different way than anger and fear do i, I feel um and, and so i i agree shame played a uh, a major role and it fed into um shame also promoted anger and fear in interesting ways in this election so when people were made to feel like um what they believed was unacceptable or somehow ignorant um, when those are the driving critiques of folks, um, then they're going to be in a place where they're willing to go to extremes that they would not have considered before to avoid the facing that shame head on. Right. Um, and, and so, so yeah, I, I think it's a key, it's an insight I'll, I'll be thinking about after this conversation. I, I, I do think it's worthwhile for listeners to think through that prism on, on what has happened over the last, uh, over this election. So I want to ask my pal, the, the, she's the, the, the real expert in the room. Can I ask you a question? Of course Suzanne? you can. Okay. Because we got to wrap up here and I, I, I could talk to, maybe we probably will end up talking to Michael yeah. for another hour after this, but <laughs> I want you to just, this is like, you know, quick game show thing. I okay. hate to say it, but. Each number has a gift, right? And we are in a time of instability and pain. And so, regardless of politic or everything else, I just want you to just off the top of your head. I'm going to run through the numbers real fast. I want you to tell me what gift can each type bring to the equation of healing and you know uh, of our of our country right now. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, ones are called the perfectionists, and what gift do they bring us? Integrity. Mm. So, it, I, I was just thinking about irresponsible speech. So ones can bring to the table that we need to have always have integrity with our speech so that we're, we're saying what needs to be said in a way that it can be heard. Okay. So twos, the helpers, the givers, what do they bring to us right now? Um, I think what they can bring is a loving challenge. Mm. I think they can lovingly say to people, we need to stop that and we need to do this. Mm-hmm. So uh, twos are really good about moving toward people in order to build relationships. And we need to move, I, th- I think, taking into account what Michael said earlier about reading broadly, I think what twos need to do is move toward people who they disagree with mm. because they can begin to set the table for other people to come. Great. So threes, the performers, the achievers, what, what, would, what would they bring to the, the table of healing? Well, threes um, are really good leaders and they cut corners. Mm. And I think we need to cut some corners. <laughs> Well, we certainly need some people who can, who can negotiate, yeah. make some compromise, right? Yeah, okay. I, I think we need to leave out some of the details and move forward quickly yeah. to a better place. And threes have a, a you know, they're up at way high like airplanes. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, feet, you know. <laughs> so I, I think that could be a great thing. Michael, fours, what, what gift do you think fours bring to the equation right now to help heal our country? A, a loyal insistence. Ooh. Oh, about the, 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 these are, I think fours have, um, have the ability to, um, to not give up on the American project, to not give up, on uh, on their fellow citizens. They're, they're gonna, uh, they may not have the answers, but they're, they're going to be, they're going to be in the mess. They're, 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 they're gonna, they're gonna be looking for a way through. Yeah, no, and I think, can I just add to that as a four, that I think what we're going to bring to the table is empathy. 
Yeah, me too. Mm. And I think what we're going to bring to the table is to help people stay in this pain until it's done its work in us. That's right. So it's taught and, us yeah. what we need to learn. Yeah, we can't just wallpaper this over people. We got to feel the grief. We have to feel, yeah. uh, we have to repent of our uh, arrogance or whatever, uh, that we missed our brothers and sisters who are in pain. Fives. Yeah. Fives are called the, ma'am, they are called uh, the investigators. I think what we need uh, fives to bring to the table is um, knowledge. But I think it needs to be broad knowledge, not preferential knowledge. <laughs> and they're good researchers, and I think they can tell us things we don't know. So fives, bring to the table things that we don't know. Great. Sixes are loyalists or devil's advocates. Oh, I said earlier, I think what they bring to the table is their concern mm -hmm. for the common good. Great. Sevens, the enthusiasts. This is going to get to be really rough if we can't laugh at ourselves. <laughs> and sevens seem to know how to help us do that. Yeah. And I think when we're taking ourselves way too seriously, sevens yeah. have my permission to say, really? Like, you're a little over the top here. Yeah. And they're also yes. going to bring us that out-of-the-box thinking. Yes. They're going, to bring yeah. us, they're going to see patterns in the environment that the rest of us can't see and say, there's a way forward. Michael, you were going to say something. I want to let you do that because I know you're our guest. I just want to make sure we I want to no, run through that, these things. No, is good. I, no, please continue. That, that's very good. I think that's essential. Eights. Uh, yeah. I think eights are going to emerge as leaders now. I think they have uh, kind of sat back and, and led in their own small environment, but I'm not sure they brought their leadership to the fore for the greater environment. You know, eights don't risk their own stuff as much as they're willing to risk everybody else's. Mm. And I think eights are going to take a risk uh, on their own stuff in order to um, say, here I am, and I'm ready to lead, and I've, I've looked at all of this, and, and we can move forward from here. So I'm looking for that from eights. Yeah, and I'm going to close a little. Just kind of close on the nine because you and I are both married to nines, and um, I I not only look to them to be mediators and peacemakers, which is what we we often call them. Look, see the world through other people's eyes, which I think is is critical right now. But spiritually speaking, I, I think what what nines can bring to the table for us is this awareness that uh, the individualism that we have lived with for so long. Uh, and has become such a, just an accepted reality that we that merging in a way at this moment, coming together, uh, maintaining uh, a healthy and a healthy nine way, our own individuality, but but recognizing our commonality at the same time. Union, not merging. Union, boy, that's something we I think they could help us with. I agree with that, and I want to add a, a a generation on to the nine numbers. <laughs> Well, I, all nine? No. Oh, okay. No, I, no, I just want to say, I think each of those numbers can do that. And baby boomers, oh. those of you who were born between 46 and 64, here's what I want to say from my heart to yours. It is time for us to learn from wise, smart men and women who are younger than we are. We have led for a long, long time. And it's time for us to follow in some ways. And I think young adults... Uh, in their late 20s, 30s, and 40s have so much to teach us. So maybe we need to sit down and shut up and learn from people like Michael Ware. Mm. Michael, do you have anything you want to share with us before we go? Just, you know, about any final observations about the Enneagram, the season we're in, even how Susan and I can help, you know, in our yeah. work. Um. I would just urge people to not um, 
to not give up uh, and to not check out. Mm. Um, do what you need to take care of yourself. Do what you need to remind yourself that the headlines are not um, that that the headlines are not all that there is. Um, but again, like I said in our last conversation, uh, the, the, the types of folks that are thinking about these issues, the types of folks that are listening to this podcast right now are the exact people that we need in our politics and uh, in our public square right now. And so I know it's ugly. I know that we, uh, that, that we, we, uh, there was all this talk, which I was a part of that said, uh, I can't wait till this election is over and we could get on with, and I know there's a weariness. Um, uh, but, but we were, we're in this together and we could get out, but we want to make sure that we're not checking out at the very moment. Um, when, when the question is up for grabs, yeah. when, when the, when, uh, when we have decisions to make. And so I would just encourage folks that are listening that, uh, that you have something valuable to bring to the table. Mm. So, so uh, oh, oh, sorry. here's what I think, Michael. I think um, as a Christian talking to a Christian, um, I think the Holy Spirit whispered in your ear the title for your book, Reclaiming Hope. And I'm just betting that the rest of it is spirit-filled with good, holy wisdom as well. So I'm just so grateful that I know you, and I can hardly wait until my book arrives. It's available uh, January 17th, but I've already pre-ordered on Amazon. Oh, that's good. I need to do that. I haven't done it yet. Can I just close with a quote? It's very short. Sure. Uh, Sometimes I've used it as a benediction. It's... uh... I'm not a French scholar, but it's Henri Amiel, I think, it, it, who, who said it. But just for, all, for everybody, he, he said, life is short, and we never have too much. I'm sorry, he says, life is short, and we never have too much time for gladdening the hearts of those who are traveling the dark journey with us. Oh, be swift to love. Make haste to be kind. That's my prayer today. Boy, it's a good one. And Michael, tell Melissa that I have an old lady crush on you. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Love being with you. Bless you. Bye. You've been listening to The Road Back to You, looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram with me, Ian Morgan Cron, and my friend Suzanne Stubiel. Our producer is Jim Chafee, and our engineer is Brad Bass. Our theme music is provided by the band Waterdeep from their album Moment, written by Lori Chaffer. Please visit our website, www.theroadbacktoyou.com, for news, more podcasts, a list of our public appearances, and how to book us to come to your city. And you can order our book, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And be sure to join us next week when our guest will be Jeff Chu, an Enneagram 6. He's a great guy. You don't want to miss that one.